I am so happy to be here today with Ryan Lewis, a software developer. And uh, Ryan and I have been talking offline quite a bit about different ideas, and uh, I value his perspective on things. And um, we both listened to Jordan Peterson's conversation or lecture, I guess, at Ephesus, the Logos at Ephesus. And we were both struck by a number of things that he said. So Ryan is going to sort of kick this off talking about how the Logos at, Eph at Ephesus um, relates to software development. And I'm really interested to hear what he has to say. Cool. Thanks, Karen. Yeah, I and I'm I'm not an expert in anything in the world by any means. So aren't, aren't we glad? <laughs> yeah. So this will just be me rambling and I'm just another peanut in the peanut gallery. So, you know, for whatever this is or isn't worth. Um, well, that's the lovely thing about being a very small little corner. <laughs> right. Yeah. So I guess um I don't know. I I stumbled across Peterson back in like 2016 or something, and I, I'm not even sure I could tell you exactly why I was interested in him. I just, I, I was, I gravitated to him, I gravitated to the the Maps of Meaning lectures and just saw something there that was interesting. And, you know, over the years, I've started to kind of piece it together. And I think this, this Logos at Ephesus thing really helped because, yeah, I think it, it relates to a lot of my thoughts about just software. I've been... I've been writing code since I was like seven years old, almost every day since then. I just became obsessed with it. And I, you know, it's, it's an interesting field to me because I think people often perceive it as a very, I mean, it is logic and math heavy, obviously, but I think people perceive it in this very strict structured way. And they, they think of it as, as purely a science, you know, whereas, I've really come to think of it more as an art and there is kind of a conversation in, in the industry about this, like whether, whether it's more like, um, more like a science or an art. And, you know, I've argued with my coworkers about this. It's a fun thing to kind of banter back and forth because, you know, you've got, you've got some, some really staunch like materialists who are like, no, this is, this is a science and I want to be called a computer scientist and all this stuff. And then you've got some more kind of touchy feely free flowy people like me who are like, no, it's, you know, it's, it's about all these intuitions and stuff. And, you know, so like when Peterson talks about, um, I don't know how we're not, we're not necessarily uh, directly perceiving just pure matter. You know, we're really perceiving our own kind of abstractions on top of that. And we're perceiving possibilities and all this kind of stuff. I really feel that when I'm doing software stuff, because it's like, you know, uh, like on this monitor here, I have one of my systems I work on and it's it's just millions of lines of code. It's massive. You know, it's 20 something years old. It's it's there's just a lot going on. And it's like I can't perceive all the lines of code. Obviously, I don't even have all that in my brain. I haven't even seen all of it. Right. What I really have in my brain is a bunch of abstractions at different levels, you know. And so, like, I conceive of the system as as parts of a system. Right. And, and those, those are like abstractions of stuff. And so I might think of, you know, the login system or whatever, which really that's backed by a whole bunch of code and that interacts with other parts of the system that are doing different things. And like when developers are getting together talking about this stuff, we're really, we're not usually talking about the literal like actual lines of code. We're usually talking about our abstractions, you know? And so we're engaging with each other 
at the level of this thing that's higher up, you know? And then when you really get down to it, it's like, okay, what, what then is the system? Is it the code? Because, you know, even, even, even a line of this code is kind of an abstraction because that's like, you know, commands in, in a language down to a lower language and that goes, feeds down to a lower language. And eventually you get down to the hardware, you know, executing stuff on these bits and a bit is a, you know, whatever, an electrical signal and that goes down and it's like turtles all the way down. Right. Cause we don't even know what's at the bottom of that. And it's naive for us to think that it's just kind of fundamental reality down there somewhere. Um, and so I don't know, this is just the kind of stuff that pops in my head when I listen to Peterson, because I just, I just live in the world of software and I don't know. Does that make any sense? Oh, absolutely. But I wonder what you said, turtles all the way down. It seems to me it's more like turtles all the way up because yeah, yeah. whatever it is that's down there, it's the thing above that that's managing it. And then the thing above that that's managing that. And it, it goes all the way up to where the the instruction set or the rule set is coming from these higher abstraction levels. Right. Right. And it's, and it's, it's, and it's, it's interesting to sit in different kinds of meetings because like, you know, we'll, you, you might have a meeting where you're actually looking at lines of code and people are, are arguing about it, but then you might have a meeting where you're talking, you're at another level of abstraction and you're talking about, parts of the system, you know, and you might go all the way up and talk about the whole architecture as a whole or the architecture of this system as it relates to other systems, you know, and it's like everyone's got to be on the same page about which level of abstraction they're talking about for it to make any sense, you know, and what I find, I guess, good developers are the ones that seem like they're, they're best at kind of reading the room and knowing what level of abstraction to talk about. You know, you get these really, um, really math and logic-y people that get really fixated on things and they tend to talk too, too, too far down, you know, and, and then they're trying to engage with people that are more thinking about the system up here, you know, especially people that aren't programmers. They, they don't have, they can't look at the code. They can't understand the code, but they can understand all the higher level abstractions, right? And so that's what they're talking about. But if the developer is talking down here, then it just doesn't match and it's not congruent. Right. And that seems to me that know, that's sort of that paradigm of accuracy and expression that you can go too far in one direction or the other. So if the if the guys that get fixated on the little niggly stuff down at the bottom or, you know, towards the bottom, they're focusing so much on accuracy that they're losing the big picture of the expressive nature of what this thing is meant to do as a whole. Right. And and then the people that are not technical, they tend to think more in that expressive world and they can fly off too far into the stratosphere without getting anywhere. Right. So you need the people in the middle that can hold things together. Yeah. And And that's a lot of what we deal with. Like I, I think I've been kind of surprised as I've been in the software industry that so much of it is really a, it, it's a, it's people work more so than thing work. If that makes any sense. Like I, I really thought I would be spending a lot of my time writing code and I do, but really I spend a lot of my time working with like on the phone with people as we talk about the abstractions that exist on our heads and we need to kind of coordinate with each other. Like if I'm going to go change the, the whole architecture of some part of the system, 
I'm working on my little mental model, which is going to feed down into the actual code eventually, you know, and then I've got to communicate that to everyone else so they can update their mental models. And, you know, you used the word earlier, like what the system is meant to be. And I think that in some sense is, is one of the more fascinating things to me about all this, because it's like, where does the system live? Like, obviously in a, mm-hmm. in a, plain flat material sense the system lives in the hardware right it's it's code that is you know has flipped some bits on some chips somewhere and that gets ex- executed and like yeah that is the system sort of but like when there's a bug in it we we tend to think of it as what's in the hardware is not operating according to what the system ought to be and so we kind of have this higher level conception of the system, which we really think of as the real system, right? And so that you, you can think of it as the meaning and the matter, right? And so it's like the program, you know, actually, literally, whatever exists on the hardware, but but in, in a kind of more fundamental sense, the program exists in the minds of all the people designing it, right? And and we, we even in the industry, we talk about it this way in, in kind of... Um, you know, in our slang, we'll say things like, oh, it feels like that part of the system wants to be doing this. We, we kind of we kind of impose this sort of intentionality on it or this sort of life to it. And, you know, what we're what we're meaning by that is that there, there's this there's this almost like form that the system is trying to conform to trying to conform to. Right. And, and because it's like you can find parts of the system that just don't feel quite congruent, right? And they're not fitting together properly. And we even have um, we have phrases for this, like a like a smell. You know, like I open the fridge and I smell something bad. It, it's like I, I might not be aware of where that's coming from. I just I'm sensing something, and then I have to find out what that is. You know, but the same thing happens when I'm looking at code. It's, I mean, it's it's a really weird feeling, honestly, that's hard to describe to people, but it's like, I can look at a whole part of a system or code or, or, or bugs or whatever. And I just have kind of this sense that like, uh, something's off here. Something smells bad. And that's actually what we call it, code smell, right? And it's like, something just feels off and you kind of just, you don't, you don't do a bunch of logic and math to find the bug. You, you actually kind of just, sit with it for a while. I mean, almost like literally you kind of just kind of just sit here and kind of feel it and just kind of let you, you let feelings and intuitions bubble to the surface. And eventually you have a moment of insight where you're like, Oh wait, maybe it's over there. And, and, and you do this sort of tree thing and good developers are the ones who are really, really good at that process. Because like when a bug happens, it could be coming from any part of this system, any millions of the lines of code. Right. And, you know, if especially with like less experienced developers, you know, you'll get on a phone call with them and you're trying to solve a problem and they just start throwing everything that comes in their mind at you. They're like, maybe it's this, maybe it's this, maybe it's this. And I find that especially the more experienced I get, the more I get better at just naturally filtering out, filtering out like 98% of what they're saying. And I'm not doing that based on logic or, or, or explicit knowledge, you know, I'm doing it based on just feeling, just gut feelings. It's like, I hear the words and they just kind of bounce off. Cause I'm naturally like, eh, I don't know. It's not that. And I couldn't tell you why, 
you know, and maybe, you know, if you asked me why, maybe I could say, well, you know, because of this and this and this, but like that all just happened somehow, you know, and then a lot of developers will have these crazy experiences where we'll actually dream solutions to problems. You know, it's the same kind of thing as I think you've talked about with scientists where it's like, you know, we like to think that our, our, our scientific and, you know, our, our whatever, that kind of knowledge happens through this logic and through this explicit, like I have my axioms and I work out the thing and boom, I come to the thing. It's like, that's not how it works at all. And that's not how it really works in software either, which is why I'm always arguing to my coworkers this really, I experience this more as an art, you know, if I was writing a novel, you know, I, I, I imagine I'd be kind of sitting with the characters and, and just kind of pondering and feeling what would they do? It wouldn't, it wouldn't be this rote, boring math process. It would be this very flowy kind of dance. And I, and I do the same thing with, with software. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's fascinating. I mean, everything that you said is just resonating. <clears throat> um, I'm interested that there's there's actually a debate within the industry that you have some people that cling more to the, oh, it's strictly scientific, it's strictly logical. And then the other side that kind of sees the necessity of the intuition of the, um, mm-hmm. of the imagination in the whole process. I don't think how I don't see how you could possibly get away from the imaginary, the imagination aspect of it, because <clears throat> I mean, you're building something that's never existed before. So <laughs> Right. There's no other option except imagination, you know. Right. In a sense, all that we can see is what has come before. What has already been has gone from a wave to a particle. It's already solid. It's concrete. You know, the past is concrete. It's there. Um, That's all we can see. All I can see are the things that have been manufactured around me that that inhabit my life. Um, But if I'm going to move forward, I have to find my way through that path of possibilities. And that requires some sort of connection to a higher meaning or a higher goal or a higher aim. And if you have a, a responsibility to build a certain product that's going to provide facility for people in their either, you know, their computers or their phones or, you know, whatever it might be, their Wi-Fi widgets, um, then you've got to be looking at that path of possibilities. You've got to be using imagination. That's not all, it's certainly not the scientific process because the scientific process, you'd be stumbling around trying this experiment and then trying that experiment and Mm -hmm. then observing the results of the experiments. And you could do it that way, sure, but I think it would be a much longer process, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, we, yeah. And it's like my, my, my coworkers who see things in a more material or scientific way, I think like they would certainly acknowledge like, yeah, there is this process of exploration or whatever and intuition and that all helps. But I think they just kind of see that as like, well, that's just, that's just kind of pragmatic layers that exist on top. You know, I don't think they really see any, any, any real meaning up there. You know what I mean? It's like, uh, you know, I remember we we read this. Uh, we do some book clubs at work just just for fun, and we read this. Uh, I think it was Doug Hofstadter, Girdel Escher Bach, mm-hmm. which is a really interesting little book. I think you would like it actually. 
together, I, right? I, uh, I tried listening. I, there's a series of his lectures online of the Gödel Escherbach, where he's okay. teaching it to some students at whatever high level university he's at. Right. And it's all free, you know, it's great. But it, it seemed a little bit beyond my, what he was teaching them anyway, seemed quite a bit beyond my technical expertise. Gotcha. Okay. So, um, I, it might be easier for me to read the book because I could just flip through and find the parts that stand out to me or that resonate mm. with my. Thinking. Well, it's it's a it's a funny book because it's I mean it's really quirky it's really weird I mean he's like he's like using all these like metaphors and like stories and Alice in Wonderland and stuff and he's he's basically trying to argue that like consciousness is emergent like when you when you really get down to it that's that's what he's trying to contend for mm. and I think that's how a lot of my coworkers see it. And so I think if they if they heard me talking about all this, they they would acknowledge most of what I'm saying, but they would I think their pushback would be something like, well, you know, that is all just you're just describing the complexity of what happens, but the complexity still exists in the you know, it's it's just the stuff. It's just the matter, right? And I guess this is kind of like my where I connect it with what Peterson is doing, because it seems like Peterson's project is trying to tease out like what is precisely the relationship between all these things, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and so I guess I, I, when I listen to the logos at Ephesus and I think through how would I talk about this stuff with, you know, um, some of my like materialist, coworkers like it it feels very similar to the conversations we've had about you know like software development itself because it's like it, you know peterson's doing this thing where he's trying to argue that in some sense meaning is like i, I don't know how to put it i'm not a philosopher but like meaning is like more fundamental well he says meaning, matter. He, well i'm not sure if he said this outright but what i wrote in my notes is meaning precedes matter right and, and, you know, because when we look at an object, we don't look at the object just as an object and then infer how to use it or what it would mean in our lives. When we look at the object, we immediately see, see it as a tool or see it as a means to something that we can use. And our body even forms itself immediately on how to pick it up because we know what we're going to do with it. So the meaning inside our heads at least precedes the matter but then he goes beyond that to um yeah i think in that lecture he's actually going all the way back to like the in the beginning was the word almost you know getting back to that mm-hmm. very fundamental point that that the word precedes the the cosmos basically which is like the meaning precedes the matter and, and, and certainly so in language, is, you know, computer is a language. So whatever software is, the meaning is there before the matter arrives. Um, my husband designs uh, Wi-Fi boxes. He has the picture of that thing in his head before he ever gets it on paper or hands it over to somebody else to tool it up and, and create the box. So the meaning is preceding the instantiation of, of that meaning into matter. It works in every other area of life. So why wouldn't it work in, you know, in these very fundamental? That's very interesting. I've actually never thought about that. Because, yeah, like in order for like Wi-Fi to work, you you have a group of people that gets together and like 
Sweden or somewhere and literally sits around saying, this is how it should work. Mm-hmm. And then that gets distributed to all the people who are building the hardware and the software. Yes. And so, yeah, that has to, that has to come from above. You so then I, I, so then it's like, do, I guess really what, what then is, is like, does that go all the way up? You know, like, and, and I think that's kind of what Peterson is, is working on, right? It's like, it, it seems that it must, but what does that mean? You know, because I think, again, like that my, my coworkers would push back, I think saying like, well, we, we experience it that way. We experience it as if it goes all the way up, but like, that's just our experience. And if we weren't there to experience it, then it would just be flat matter. There is, there is nothing at the top. The top is something we impose. Um, and and I, I guess this is really, I guess why I've been thinking about this so much, because it's like, I don't feel like I really have a good response to that. That's compelling. You know, like I personally am religious. Like I believe in God in the plainest sense of that, but, but how, I, I don't know how to make this, this connection in a way that actually, I don't know. Well, so I have a couple of thoughts, um, and I, not to answer that question, but just thoughts sure. that came up while you were talking. Um, first of all, even before we arrived on this planet, there were a lot of plants, <laughs> and plants are certainly striving upwards towards some goal. I mean, that's absolutely irrefutable. If you look at the the biology of plants, um, it would be interesting maybe for some of your coworkers to see some of that stuff, like everything that's going on in a tree, just the factory that a tree is and the purposes that it has in the world. I mean, it's, mm. it's beyond comprehension, but, but the other thing that came to my mind is a very simple little thought that I had written down. I, I was telling you before we got on that I spent five hours trying to go through a pile of papers in my office and I kept running into things that I had written down. And so I make little notes for myself. And one of those little notes is, since error exists, and we know that errors exist, right? There can be mistakes, problems, errors everywhere. Then there has to be a standard somewhere that's correct. And errors must have existed since the beginning of time. <laughs> I don't know. Um, Certainly, at least since the garden errors have existed, but um, when you think about uh, hydrogen and helium forming stars and then elements being burnished off in the midst of these stars and everything and turning into elements and, you know, was that all a seamless process that that just all happened or did it happen through some sort of trial and error thing? I mean, I don't know, but but when when you're looking at, for example, Michael Levin and his his uh, multicellular organisms as they're developing, um, there are sometimes little errors that happen in that development. You know, maybe like with thalidomide. I don't know if you remember the whole thalidomide thing back 50 years ago or so. There was a <clears throat> It was some sort of a medication. I can't remember what it was for. Maybe it was for anxiety or something. And they were prescribing it to um, just about everybody. And they thought it was safe for pregnant women, but it wasn't. 
and babies were born with no legs or with no arms or with uh, just little hands sticking out of their shoulders. Um, it was really horrible. But those those errors happened because the cells weren't following their normal path towards the thing that they're striving towards, the goal of this perfect development. So one of the things Michael Levin always asks is, how do the cells know when they're building an arm, how do they know where to stop so that both arms end up the same length? I mean, those things are very mysterious, even to the people who work intimately with that stuff day in and day out. Mm. So, um, but the other thought that came to my mind is I, one of the books I was reading a couple of years ago and I took quite a few notes on, which I'd like to go back to is a book by Dorothy Sayers. I don't know if you know who she is. She was a, she was a writer. Um, she wrote mystery novels and she also wrote um, books of philosophy back in the mid 20th century, maybe um, beautiful mind. And she wrote a book called the mind of the maker where she's looking at art and the creation of art. And she came up with this idea that she calls the Trinity of creativity so the trinity of creativity consists of the creative idea, the creative energy, and the creative power. So the idea, the energy, and the power. So I was trying to think how that breaks down in various categories. And uh, so the, the idea would be, with art, the idea would be art as conceived before you've begun the project, right? Or with, okay. with a book, it would be the book as conceived in your mind, as thought about before you start the writing process. Then the creative energy would be the art as it is produced, the process and the result of producing the art, or the process and the result of the writing of the book. But then the power is the meaning of the work, or it is the art as it is being viewed by somebody and their, their relationship with the work and the power and the meaning that they find in the work or a book as when it's being read, <clears throat> the interaction of the reader and the book and the relationship that the reader then makes with the author who was the one who had the idea in the first place, right? So you have all these relational things going on in this area of creative power. And I thought that was a really interesting way to break down the uh, the whole process because um, this is the way Dorothy Sayers put it. What is conceived in the imagination must be brought into being and made manifest. And Madeline Lengel wrote the foreword to that book. And she said, that's the tangible realizing of the work, making it real. Well, that's exactly what you guys are doing with software. You have the idea, you conceive the idea, and then the energy is the process of realizing that idea, instantiating it into a substance or a reality. And then the power would be in the way that it can be used by people after it's been created. So you have these three segments of what happens in every artistic creation um and so, i mean that's like i mean that sounds to me like like yeah the, the word becomes flesh right like pejos like heaven and earth coming together and that's where meaning is right 
Christ. Well, so as... It sprang in my mind was the way, the truth, and the life. Because the way is the idea. It's the the aspect of of goodness. How how what are we striving towards? What's the what's the ultimate goal? That's the idea. And then the the truth is Christ, right? The incarnation of Christ, the embodiment, mm -hmm. the the energy, and then um, the power is the life, the life of the body, the unity of the body, everybody working together, all the interactions. Um, so yeah, and and I like your thought there too about Jonathan Peugeot and the the union of heaven and earth. Yeah, well, you, and what's funny is you know. I love Matthew's book, The Language of Creation. Mm -hmm. He's also a software guy, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think my brain works similar to him in that, you know, he he's always talking about, yeah, one, one of his fundamental patterns is the the heaven and the earth coming together. And that's me meaning happens in that union of heaven and earth, right? Just as Christ is is the union of of his two natures, right? Mm-hmm. And that, and, and in some sense, this is where all of it comes together, you know, like, I mean, it comes together in Christ and, and, and it, it is all, it's, it's all patterned after him. It's patterned after his nature of, of this union. Right. And, um, and so I actually think about this often during my work day because it does feel like, yeah, we're, we're taking the ideas, the, the, con you know, our, our conception of the system and we're taking the raw code and, you know, the language and all the stuff we do and we're bringing it together. And that is the system. That's where the system emerges from. It, it emerges mm -hmm. from, 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 from heaven, you know, coming down and, and meeting with earth. Right. And, and I'm sure that's how art feels as well. Mm -hmm. Not an artist, but it's, it's the same. Well, pattern, I, right? Yeah, it is because with art, you have the idea, but then, you have to be using things of the earth. You have to be using paint and brushes and paper or canvas, all of those tools of the earth that you're using. And the two of those together, the idea and then the tools, then you end up with this piece of art that is neither of those things. It's not just the idea and it's not, it's, it's an instantiated idea, but that idea required the things of earth to produce it. But there's an additional element in there, and that's the action, right? Um, this is one of the things that I think is so important. I think it was Carl Friston said that, or maybe it was Mark Solms, in the absence of precision, um, there cannot be adequate prediction. Uh, I don't have the quote right at hand. But, but the idea is that what I got from that is that the only way we can develop precision is through experience. So I cannot become a better artist just by having ideas or just by watching videos of other people painting or just by thinking about painting. The only way I can get better at painting is if I pick up the things of earth, the tools, the paint, the canvas, and I make an attempt and there'll be many failed attempts and each of those failed attempts, I learned something new and that it's in that action where the development happens. So 
you must have some of that when you're developing software as well. You're you're writing code and oops, that wasn't right. I have to back up a little bit. Mm-hmm. So 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 you have this process, but that's how you hone your skills and that's how you develop better and better product and that's how you're able to kind of move up into higher realms and do more complicated things. And in the big picture, it's probably similar to, you know, we're always talking about how we stand on the shoulders of giants, but all those people before us that laid the groundwork for those millions and millions of lines of code, they also made their errors, but that's how they got good enough to be able to do what they did so that you have this support system underneath what you're doing now. Yeah. Well, and and even the tools themselves are structured that way. Like, um, you know, modern, modern websites are getting more and more complicated because you have, you have kind of the original languages, like let's say, you know, JavaScript, and then another language gets layered on top of that. And then something gets layered on top of that. And I mean, that, that has, it's gotten kind of crazy. It's gotten unmanageable. It's it's become very brittle actually because of this, because now I'm working with a language that, that really gets translated down to this, down to this, down to this, down to this. And, you know, it used to be that 20 years ago, I just had to know the one down here. But now all the tools are, are becoming, you know, it's, it's almost, it's this weird like Tower of Babel sort of thing. Hmm. And um, is there a chance for error to happen through that translation process? Oh, yeah. And and we find, and so, so this is another whole conversation in the industry. There's a, there's a funny little anecdote I like where, um, you know, it, it used to be that you know, especially before the internet, people would write a lot of their own stuff. And so everyone was kind of reinventing the wheel. You know, there were lots of copies of the same kinds of, of whatever algorithms and stuff. But, but as people have started sharing more code, there's more, you know, people will reuse code and that lets you speed up quite a bit, right? Because now I'm not having to come up with ways to do all this stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I can just, go find a thing that already does it and it's free and I just kind of plug it all together and it works. Right. But that comes at a cost, right? Because the, and the, and the cost is that, you know, a, I, I don't understand those things because I'm really just treating it as a black box thing. And if it breaks, you know, I might look inside and see what's going on, but like, you know, someone's been working on that thing for years and they know all the nitty gritty fundamentals of it. And I don't, and I'm stringing together a whole bunch of these things to make my system work. Right. And it, it just becomes very fragile and, and you're just kind of cobbling stuff together for the sake of being very efficient and going, you know, going fast. Um, and so <laughs> there was this funny thing that happened maybe a, a few years ago where like there's millions of, of programs that rely on this very trivial piece of shared code, which just takes a, takes a word and adds some spaces to the beginning of it on websites I mean, it's, it's very simple, you know, that's, that's about the easiest possible thing you could do. And yet people have outsourced all of their stuff to things like this, right? Well, someone got mad and it was like some sort of like political situation where someone decided to take that thing offline. Well, suddenly everything everywhere was broken because this, you know, this one trivial little thing was missing, but everyone was depending on it. And you know, all these websites were down and they couldn't build properly. And it, it was, it was a mess probably only for a few hours, you know, and it was easy to fix, but it started a conversation in the industry about like, why are we doing this? Why have we structured things this way? You know? Um, well, so could I clarify that little piece 
was that I'm so stupid. I don't really know how this works. No, 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 no. It's, it's, but I'm not explaining. What, was it actually, it's online, and was it that actually integrated into other programs so that when they took it offline, it took it out of the program, or was mm -hmm. it just that, oh, my goodness. So it wasn't just yeah. that new development had to start from scratch and not use that, but it actually, are there other things like that? Could somebody take off some bigger, more important chunk? And oh, there's all kinds of stuff like that. Oh, and it's getting man, worse and worse, worse every than day. the electric grid then, isn't it? That's oh, yeah. Really it's, it's, it's very brittle. Um, and, it, but, you know, we're all just used to it. And, 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 and everyone's come to expect this, right? Like you, you want your, whatever, your iPhone to work well and all these apps to work. And, um, you know, it's like we've we've learned to just accept this state of things for the sake of convenience. You know, I, I was. I mean, this is kind of a dumb example, maybe, but like yesterday I was on my little budgeting app and the connection to the bank wasn't working properly. Well, it used to be I didn't have that connection to the bank. I would just manually put in all my stuff. But I've gotten so used to not having to do that now that when the connection breaks for whatever reason, because of things like I'm describing, you know, all kinds of stuff. You've now you've got two systems that have to stay in sync, but really it's like the budgeting app talking to a whole bunch of different possible banks. Right. And so any of those connections could break. Right. And so it's like the more things become connected, the more brittle the whole world becomes. Right. And this is, I mean, you know, there's, there's ways sort of to have redundancies and stuff, but it's like, there's this sort of weird inverse relationship between like, the more I want things to be fast and efficient and convenient, the quicker it's going to fall apart. You know, the, the the taller my building gets, the more it's going to sway in an earthquake, you know? And it's like, I, I really think, I mean, my, my sense is that the industry is, is going to hit a tipping point soon. Well, you see this all, also with all the cloud stuff, right? You know, it's, it's become very trendy to move all systems to the cloud, which is just, you know, other people's computers, you know? So it's like, we take all our stuff and we put it on Amazon machines or Microsoft machines or whatever. But, you know, when a, when a hurricane hits Houston and their, their power grid goes offline, well, suddenly the whole world is, you know, depending on web traffic going through that Houston thing because of whatever, we're all relying on that system for something simple, kind of like the thing I was talking about earlier, but a mm. little more complicated, you know? Well, it's like, I mean, this actually happened to us. Like uh, the Houston, whatever, their, their big farm out there went down for a day or something or a few hours. And like suddenly our whole system was down because all of our traffic was going through that one location, right? And that was a decision we made for convenience because that allowed us to not have to deal with all these other issues, you know, architecturally because of that one architectural decision, it, you know, it became the single point of failure. Right. And they, they advertise it as like, Oh, well, you know, there's all these redundancies and if that goes down, it'll go through here. And it's like, yeah, okay. Hopefully ideally that would work, but it's not always going to. And so I think as you know, if the industry continues moving this direction, we're all going to start dumping our stuff on Amazon and Microsoft and depending on these single points of failure for convenience. And when those go down, oh, well, tough, you know? And I mean, I'm not well, all I, I guess super I'm more concerned about, about this tower of turtles where 
there have been all these different languages through the decades that things have been built on and without going in and starting from scratch on any of it it's just it's just all cobbled together from the bottom up and then if you know they talk that that's the way the electrical grid is too everything is just cobbled together so in order to redo the electric grid would be a massive unimaginable project and i'm assuming mm -hmm. that the internet is the same way like, yeah and all well, this one, and everything i think one benefit of i think one benefit the the software industry has over others is that like it, it is it is easier to change things it is a lot quicker to change things and so you know like in our system um I started this company seven years ago and seven years ago, the whole system looked completely different. I mean, it's really like a ship of Theseus situation where we've, we've kind of replaced parts slowly one by one, you know, according to whatever our system of values is. And so we sit down and decide, okay, this is the biggest pain point for us. So let's redo this and then let's redo this and then let's redo this. And it's like, you know, fast forward seven years, the whole system sort of is, is very, very different, you know? And a lot of those fragile, brittle things, we've we found ways to clean them up and make them more robust, right? But mm -hmm. we're still relying on this kind of fragile uh, architecture, fragile like software world. But, you know, maybe, I don't know, maybe that also can be addressed. You know, I think like as... And I think that will happen naturally. So like what, like I was talking about with JavaScript, having all these things on top of it, eventually everyone's going to get sick of it and they're going to move on to, you know, some other things that are emerging that are like similar technologies, but they're sort of newer and they're going to be more robust. And, you know, it'll it'll be this kind of eternal recurrence of the same thing, I think. Well, so like, I'm not like, like, I, I don't know. This is probably a dumb idea. And yeah, anyway, is there any so, way that um, AI maybe not as currently constituted, but at some future point, you could just give a program to AI and say, okay, this has a whole bunch of different languages in it. We'd like you to translate the whole thing from the bottom up into X language, you know? And yeah, then well, so it's, it's really interesting you bring that up because <laughs> that's like not that exact thing, but that type of thing has really, has actually been my job for the past three years. Like basically we had, we have this massive system that was in on a bunch of old technologies and it would have been too slow for us to manually redo all of it. And so we chose for the sake of simplicity and, and speed to do a couple things. One, we started adding layers on top to make it work with modern tools. And so we kind of kept all the old stuff, inserted these very complicated middle layers, and then the, 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 the modern version of it kind of rests on top, right? And so that let us move fast, but it is at the cost of it being a little more um, complicated, right? But also we, what what I've been doing is a lot of um, writing little robots almost that like look at the old code, try to un understand it in a very rudimentary sense and then generate new code that works with this new structure. Oh, beautiful. Right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's what I was thinking. And That's exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, you know, that process for me has been very manual. I'm having to tell it, okay, here, here's what our old patterns looked like. Go find all of those. And it'll, it'll go find, you know, 10,000 instances of that pattern. 
And then I'll tell it, okay, in these types of situations, generate this, and in these types of situations, generate this. And, it, you know, it's very complicated, but it, it worked. We were able to do this successfully. And probably I think AI will somehow, in some manner, start to automate things like that. Mm -hmm. um, already, you know, I mean, the the GBT, the chat GBT thing that everyone's talking about, it can already spit out code for you. It's not very good at it necessarily, but it is, um, it has a lot of knowledge. And so it, it's almost like asking, like asking, uh, you know, the, the Oracle of Delphi, like, Hey, what, how would I start doing X, Y, Z? And it'll actually give you a decent response and say, look, well, in that technology, here's kind of the parts of it. And here's how they would sort of fit together. And it like, it's a little bit wrong, but but it is actually a lot faster than doing a Google search for all the different things I need, because I don't know all the paths I need to trace to figure out the, the new thing, but like the AI already in its current state can, can do parts of that for me. Mm -hmm. And um, I find that very interesting and I'm sure that's only going to improve over time, but I also, I don't know a lot about AI and, its limitations and stuff. So I'm, you know, like I, I don't know what the implications of it are going to be, but there are a lot of people in the industry that are pretty excited about the prospect of what that'll mean. But it's, it's the same as the conversation about AI art. Like what are the consequences of this for our experience as human beings? Like, I, I don't know. I'm not very optimistic about that. You know, the thing I notice about most of the AI art is it all has a certain look to it. It's not really idiosyncratic, even even when the thing pumps out a bunch of different, you know, I, I, there are scientists who are giving it prompts to pump out some sort of an artistic vision of some scientific concept. And so it'll pump out four, four variations on every concept, but they all have a certain look to them. You can tell that that's this, the AI has a style, <laughs> mm -hmm, right? right? And so not everybody goes for that style you know some of them are mm -hmm. incredibly beautiful and very detailed and um some of them are beautifully composed i mean you can see that the thing has some sort of has had some sort of input on what makes good composition and good balance and and all of that so i mean that that's mm -hmm. all amazing but it's also i guess what i'd call a little bit shiny or a little bit pretty it it it, it doesn't have the doesn't have that error in there that makes things look human, artistic kind of, mm. doesn't have those little error signals. <laughs> right. And then yeah. when it does, they're atrocious. It's like hands that are not yeah. hands, yeah. like yeah. demonic. Yeah. Yeah. Or the face is missing or the head is turned backwards or something like that. Yeah. 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 But not mm. the kind of little errors that make things beautiful. I mean, you know, like they say that, Michelangelo, when he would complete a piece, he would go back in and chip off a piece because he never wanted anything to be mm. perfect. Because I, I don't know if this was his reasoning. Maybe he was thinking only God is perfect. And maybe he was kind of arrogant to think that he had produced something perfect that needed to have a chip taken out of it. I don't know. But but that right. was his thinking, you know, that that there is a certain thing that makes something look human made. And uh and I don't think we want to lose that because that's part of what keeps the liveliness. That's part of what always gives something more to strive for. 
if you ever attain perfection or think that you've attained perfection, you stop moving upward. You stop trying, right? Mm-hmm. So, so you have this. You're talking about this kind of, um, what did you call it? A Tower of Babel. Of uh, there's two sides to that. There's the Tower of Babel that makes things brittle, and there's too many pieces and and all of that. But inside that Tower of Babel, with your software, there's also all these shoulders of giants and this amazing technology that you've built on top and it's all progressing upwards towards something better. Mm-hmm. But if you hit the top and okay, we've arrived, then who, you're not going to bother anymore. That's the end of the software development. But, but because we can never reach the top because true goodness and truth and beauty are so unimaginably far beyond anything we could ever conceive, then we always have room to grow, always have room to grow that comes out of our imperfection. So if you didn't have the imperfection, there'd be no place to go. Hmm. Yeah. I broke the internet. <laughs> there you go. I'm just, I'm, I'm, my mind's in like a million different places. I, um, I don't know. I think, I mean, just on a, on a, on a personal note, I'm I'm just kind of like, I am a little nervous about the future of my industry. Like it, it really feels weird right now. And I don't know how much of that is just me or my job or whatever, but it, it's like, I don't know. And it's the same feeling I have about AI art and AI everything. And just like, the political landscape and it's just like we're we're in this weird time and it feels like it's manifesting in like every area of of life in a way and i think the feeling i get when i listen to you know again going back to like the logos at ephesus is that like a lot of it really does have to do with this conversation about like fundamentally what are we and what is consciousness and what is our value as humans in relation to the the technical world or the the world of matter? You know, what is what is our place now? You know, and um, I don't know. Well, real interesting article I read a few weeks ago about what this one guy he, he wrote the article for Medium, and I I don't know I tried to um, I tried to cut and paste from it so that I could post some things from it, but it wouldn't let me. It was acting like mm. a PDF or something. Interesting. Um, so I can't even remember the guy's name, but I'd like to give him some attribution, but I can't remember his name and he, he wouldn't let me cut and paste. So, um, but he said that he felt the ma- the major weakness of AI is that, which he thinks will always be a weakness of AI is the inability to generalize. Which I think by that he means like um, the difficulty of categorizing. Because human beings have a unique ability to categorize in spite of the combinatorial explosion of trying to understand why we categorize things in certain ways. I don't know if you've ever heard um, John Verveke riff on this, but you could take a plum and a lawnmower and say, you know, is there a category that you can put these two in, you know? Right. Well, he said, actually, there's an infinite number of ways that a plum and a lawnmower are similar. 
So uh, yes, you could find a lot of categories to put a plum and a lawnmower into, but an AI would probably never happen across that because, because the space is infinite, the AI would begin the search the whole space looking. But an, Amer an American, a human being has a, just an ability to zone right in on the relevant issue. Right. And that's this whole, that's the mystery of relevance realization. Well, and, and so then I think like, you know, going back to my conversation about like, um, my coworkers tend to be like the devil ad devil's advocate inside my head that I like have these imaginary conversations when I'm wrestling through this stuff, because I think they would say like, well, yes, the recursive relevance realization is a complex process, but it still is you know, just a material process that someday maybe we will be able to harness and then the AI will be able to do the same thing that we do. I'm not convinced that's true. I think a lot of even the materialists are not convinced that's true um, or not convinced that it's attainable. And, and I guess, you know, going back to my, my question about like, how, like, how do you, I don't have a response to that, to be honest. You know, it's like mm -hmm. my gut is that I don't I don't know. I mean, this is you're you're this concerned is kind about of the, the you're concerned about me. the God of the gaps argument. I guess so, yeah. Yeah. I think that's all I'm really saying. Yeah. Is so it, it so what yeah, what does it matter in the long run if every, I mean if every single gap is filled that's irrelevant because it's not God is not just the God of the gaps. I think it's C.S. Lewis that said God is the God of the whole show. I mean before <laughs> before time began, God was God is before time began God is, um, and so in some sense, and I don't mean this in a pantheistic way, but in some sense, the whole universe resides in God or whether it's in God's mind or in, you know, whatever God, God is, right. um, God is unimaginable to us. So he manifests himself in three persons so that we have a way to come, you know, have some sort of grasp have some way of having a relationship with God. So he manifests himself as three co-equal persons, but God is, is beyond our imagination. So if the scientists are able to answer every question, so what? <laughs> I mean, um, they would only, they, they only have questions because the world exists. They only have questions because the cosmos is here. Um, if the cosmos wasn't here and if it didn't, you know, I mean, I, I always go back to the, that old canard of, um, I think it was Stephen Hawking's who said, just give me gravity and I can give you a universe. Well, okay. Mm -hmm. But you still need gravity. Um, yeah. the physical laws still need to be there. So, um, you know, I'm going back to this idea of the creative idea, the creative energy and the creative power. I wonder if, if you made a, if you tried to parse that out into a chart, which I know has its own dangers, <laughs> that the the physical laws would be the creative idea, and then the energy would be the matter and energy that make up the universe at the at the Big Bang, and then the creative power 
is actually what as believers we would call the book of of works there's the book of the word but there's also the book of works so that when we look at the creation when we look at the cosmos we look at the stars and the heavens and and trees and insects and multicellular organisms um that is the power of of our relationship with it's like reading the book of god's handiwork and being able to see his glory and his beauty um manifest so but but the physical laws are a very important part of that so there's no problem whatever with scientists exploring those physical laws just in the way that there's no problem whatever with a an artist exploring their idea and trying to find a way to bring it into instantiation in the world using material um, tools and so forth, or a software developer having an idea and then using bits and bytes and electrons and all the things that you guys use to instantiate that pattern into the world in a way that works so that in the power comes in the interaction between the software and the user and in some little way although i think it's too far now but there should be a way in as we interact with that software that we have great gratitude towards the software developers that spend all those hours <laughs> because you know software developers give their whole lives to this stuff it's, it's not like you work nine to five and go home and just enjoy life it's in your head all the time i'm guessing mm -hmm. yeah yeah, and thankfully I've I've gotten decently good at turning it off. Um, but but yeah, it's 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 and, and you know I've been doing it for so long. I mean I like I said I've been doing it since I was like seven. So it's just like it's the way I I think about the world in terms of these patterns, and it's like unavoidable at this point. I dream about code, you know, mm -hmm. and that's that's just what it is. But I enjoy it because because it does yeah it does feel like it is my you know, Peterson talks in that, in that video about us kind of, um, I can't remember how he phrases it, but sort of us embodying the logos, you know, mm -hmm. in, in, in the same way that we are kind of bringing heaven and earth together through our, you know, we are, we are mediators in a sense, um, between, between the world and, and the ideas and whatever. Like, I feel that when I'm doing my work and I love it. It's a, it's a good feeling, you know, I think, no, oh, I think we're designed for that. Um, when you were seven, what was the first thing that you wrote? <laughs> uh, I really liked uh, SpongeBob. And so uh -huh. I made a little website that was dedicated to SpongeBob. I'm sure it was really dumb, but I can't find it anymore. Oh, I was going to say, so it's not out there anymore. Huh? No, yeah. I mean, it, was, it, it might be. It was on a, it was on this old hosting service called Angel Fire. But um, I actually, I, I still remember the day when I... Um, uh i don't know how to put it like discovered abstraction if that makes any sense like back then i would you know i would just kind of read people's code and just kind of like copy paste stuff and didn't really understand what i was doing and then when i tried to really start thinking about it myself i would just kind of uh, duplicate stuff all the time so like i remember i was working on this little I don't know, like a little web page that would show a, a slideshow of images and I wanted it to move and all this kind of stuff. And so I had a little piece of code that was like show image one and then a piece of code that was show image two and then a piece of code that was show image three. And I had like 
20 of those or whatever. And when I wanted to add new images, I would have to add new code, which is like a terrible way to do it. But I didn't know any better. And then one day I discovered, oh, wait, I can just have one of those and I can pass in a variable and it'll do the thing based on that variable. I I, 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 I seriously care. And I still remember the moment when that clicked with me because it was like, it was like the world opened up to me because I suddenly understood like, oh, all of this will just be that, that process just built on top of itself forever, you know? And, and that's what it is. It's like, you know, I make a, I make a thing that can take a little bit of input and give some output. And then I put those together to build something more complex. And that process just continues up to build the most complex things, you know? And then you can do it the opposite way too. You can think, okay, trying to conceptualize like a whole system, like, um, you know, zoom, well, there's so much going on here, but you can break it into parts. And when you get down to the bottom, it's like, oh, okay, I can manage that. You know, I can manage each of these little pieces and then I can put it together to form a system. And um, yeah, so it's just, it's a fun process. And, you know, I, I imagine it's the same sort of enjoyment people get out of their other fields and endeavors like art, you know. Well, I've um, always found it fascinating that in a, in a company that has you know, like a thousand software designers or something like that, you have probably more than one, but you have at least some architects whose job it is to see this whole big picture and then go around and hand out all the little jobs to everybody, right? Mm -hmm. How on earth, you know, can one person have a grasp of that and not, not only have a grasp of the big picture, but figure out a way to break it down into pieces that will actually fit together and pieces that are, suited to each person who's getting the task of doing that because i'm sure that there's different kinds of designers right different kinds of developers mm -hmm. so some are more suited to other tasks and and, uh, and so you do have to be a people person you have to have a grasp of abstraction i suppose that that's what that jim keller does that guy um jordan peterson's brother-in-law this is fairly well-known software developer okay oh, yeah i'm not familiar with him actually i'll have to look oh um he has a really interesting interview with Lex Friedman. Okay. That would be the place to start, I think. Jordan Peterson okay. did an interview with him, but that wasn't very satisfactory, I didn't think, because <laughs> okay. Jim Keller wasn't at his best there. But talking to Lex Friedman, he was he was really very interesting. Okay. I mean, he's been around in the industry for a long time. So some of what he worked on that made him famous is no longer like, cutting edge kind of stuff but he's still working right. in the industry interesting okay yeah i'll have to look into that um but yeah what you're saying about like um yeah the the, the architect and the top down stuff and everything like it it's that that is another thing that i find interesting about the industry because the attitude toward that side sort of thing has changed over time where you know we used to the industry used to be big on this process called waterfall. So like the image of like top down flowing where like you have people up at the top deciding the architecture and they decide the pieces and it goes down. Right. But I think what, what the industry found was that the, the feedback loop on that was so slow because you wouldn't find problems until you got to the very bottom. And that was many mm -hmm. layers down. Right. And then hopefully that would feed back up to the top and then you'd start the process over again. And that was just so slow, you know, cause each of these iterations is like months or whatever. Um, and so what started happening is this sort of um, 
I don't know, this sort of dance between top down and bottom up, you know, a sort of like trying to make it more organic and trying to shorten the feedback loop. And, um, you know, I mean, there's, there's a lot of debate on, on how well that does or doesn't work or whatever, but, um, but it is interesting because like, like, like in the system I work on, like we do have that architect who has it all in his head. Um, but you know, he, he, he can't be involved with everything. And especially as the system grows and becomes more complex, that, that has just become not sustainable. Right. And so even as an organization right now, we're kind of in the process of trying to figure out like, what does that shift look like? You know, because in the past it was pretty reasonable for him to know everything and kind of make a lot of decisions, but like, that's just not the way it can work anymore. So now what, you know, and, and it's like, I was thinking earlier today, are you familiar with like Pajot talking about like a city having a body and that sort of thing? It's like, it, it feels in a way that like our system has a mind and the mind is all the developers as neurons. Sure, like a know? distributed con- cognition. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's like, <laughs> it is, it is funny. Cause yeah, we, we all were, we've all loaded this mental model of the system in our heads and we're all kind of interacting with each other and, you know, we'll sit in meetings where the whole purpose of the meeting is to kind of recalibrate everyone's mental models, right? Um, and I don't know why this just popped in my head, but I was listening to Verveke the other day talk about depression and how, um, you know, depression is is a is kind of a state where you 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 are you are trying to recalibrate in a way because whatever you're trying to do to grip the world to move into the world to to move towards possibility is just not working for you and so you stop you slow down you know movement becomes small so that you can try to you know recalibrate and then go back into movement um i never thought about that before that's really fascinating yeah i i I'll, I'll send you the link to the video. Um, it's... Oh, that would be great. And I, I was also wanting to tell you about, there's a video by Cesar Hidalgo. Are you familiar with him? Um, I'll send you the video. I'll put it, I'll put it in the description below this okay. video. But he also has a wonderful book that you might enjoy a lot called How Information Grows. And he's looking at exactly that problem that you're talking about, how when not only when when a group of like developers are working together in a company, but then how all different companies have to be interacting with each other, you know, because you're working with your vendors and your suppliers and your buyers and, and, and all of that kind of stuff. And so all of that is what brings about the. The growth of. I mean, everything, civilization, the growth of information uh, makes things possible. He uses a beautiful illustration of like how um, Chile has vast amounts of copper. And so you would think that Chile would be a very rich nation because they have all this copper, but they don't have information. (laughs) So the the nations that have information are the ones that are rich not the ones that have the natural resources today. I mean, that's just the way it works, right? Um, Interesting. And the the illustration that he used was, okay, you could take a Lamborghini 
and maybe it cost $250,000 when you drove it off the the lot. But if you, if you wrap it around a tree on the way home and now it's all just pieces, it has mm -hmm. zero value. <laughs> so, um, because the value was in the information in the way the pieces mm -hmm. fit together. And isn't that just the way the world works too? You can know all about the elementary particles, but they don't have any meaning or value until they've fit together into something. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't think the scientists have yet figured out how those mm -hmm. elementary particles fit together and become something, you know, Right. because there's, there's a lot of layers there and maybe it is a God of the gaps thing. Okay, fine. But, um, but information is somehow at the, well, I don't think information is fundamental, but I think communication somehow is fundamental. Language or the word or communication somehow is fundamental. And information is a subset of communication. Because information by itself is meaningless unless you have a, a, a sender and a receiver. Hmm. So there's there's no meaning in the information and itself. and and a shared understanding of how it's structured, right? Yeah, like yeah, like we, you know, it's funny. Like people will kind of jokingly ask me, like, "What am I saying in binary?" And they'll just say zero, you know, whatever. They're, they're trying to be funny, but really, it's like it, it's a nonsense question because you just saying zeros and ones is is nothing unless there is some higher level understanding of like, okay, zero one one zero means a mm -hmm. and zero one 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 means B or whatever, you know, mm -hmm. it's like without that map, without that higher level meaning, the string of stuff is just nonsense, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think this is, this is one of those things that, um, It, you know, like you learn it in school as a developer and it's, it's, it, it, it kind of takes a minute to wrap your brain around, you know? Um, but once you do, a lot of stuff starts to click into place or, you know, similar to what we were talking about earlier, where like th there has to be some higher level deciding the, the way things work, you know, the, um, you know, how Wi-Fi should work, how 5g should work in order for any of this stuff to get built. Right. Without that, it's not going to happen. Um, I forgot. Yeah, where I was the thing that's that. interesting about that is sometimes it's just one person. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I remember years ago, my husband used to work for Qualcomm and and he explained to me one time how Qualcomm came to be because the founder of Qualcomm had found kind of a new way inside his head of tweaking something that turns out to be very important in the whole internet thing. I don't even remember what it was, but but he found a new way and then that became the protocol for everybody. And so now that thing is everywhere. And I think if I'm not mistaken that they had some kind of patent on it so Qualcomm could get a lot of money even without doing any work by just getting the royalties from the patents on that from everybody else who's using it because there's no other way to do it now. Because this one guy's idea, and maybe it wasn't even his idea, maybe he stole it from somebody. How do I know? But but it was one person who had an idea, and then that idea gets instantiated, and then it gets played out through all these different levels. And uh, 
Wouldn't it be funny if that guy could just say, you know what? I don't want anybody to use my idea anymore and just suck it out of everybody's brains. <laughs> yeah. Well, so what's interesting about that exact thing is that that has sort of happened. Um, not sucking out of people's brains, obviously, but yeah. like, uh, you know, the guy who who made uh, Linux. Um, <clears throat> I, I don't even remember the context of what happened exactly, but there was some there was some debate, some political debate. And there was some question about like, okay, if he just decided one day to change the license of Linux and say, no one can use this anymore. Legally, technically he could do that. And then the implications of that could be enormous. You know, and that would get filtered through courts and probably shot down or whatever. But like, it, it is interesting because yeah, so much stuff has been built on top of the thing he created and then it's like, okay, what does it what does it mean exactly that he has has ownership of that or a patent on that or whatever, however it works, you know? Like the the licensing around software is really complicated or politically complicated because what what exactly does it mean to copyright? Yeah, are we copywriting an instantiation of the thing? Are we copywriting the idea, what what layer of abstraction have we copyrighted? That's that's actually a real issue, you know? Mm -hmm. This is why you see things like, um, you know, Google getting in lawsuits over using some other thing and whatever. And it's like, how much do you have to change before it's technically different? I don't know. What is what, what is different? You know, what does that mean? What, what exactly does it mean to have a copyright over something that is is a mental model that lives in people's heads, you know? Well, and it's a mental model that lives in people's heads and it's being used for many different, in many different arenas for many different things. So even if the mental model itself could be patentable, the way that it's been instantiated and used by other people and communicated in all these other instantiations is unique and maybe doesn't even carry the same stamp anymore of the original thing. So yeah, that that's pretty crazy. But I'm thinking about like the Linux thing is just a larger version of what happens all the time because there are a lot of these smaller apps and um, websites and everything where they say, oh, this is free. You can use this for free. It's never going to cost you anything. And then two years down the road, they start, well, actually we need $8 a month. You know? It's not mm -hmm. free anymore. So, yeah. you know, that happens all the time. And so it could easily happen that Linux would just say, you know what, you can't use this anymore or it's going to cost money now. Or, you know, if it, if it was one of these evil geniuses, he could hold the whole country, <laughs> the whole world uh, hostage to his thing. You know, pretty interesting. Right. I guess that's maybe that's why they say Tanstaffel, right? There's no there ain't no such thing as a free lunch. <laughs> So if when you think yeah. there is and you make use of the freeness of it, it might come back to bite you at some point. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, the, the, the free and open source software thing is, is like, yeah, it, it's a whole can of worms for these kinds of reasons. And also other reasons, like, you know, there's a, there's this thing that millions of people use that, uh, I don't even know how to describe it. It's called Newton soft. I mean, there's, there's lots of things like this, but like, you know, it's basically maintained by one guy and it's a pretty simple thing, what it's doing, but you know, it, tons of people are relying on it. And so there's tons of people that 
are making demands of him on this public forum saying you should change it to this and you should, you know, and arguing and all kinds of stuff. And it's like, theoretically, anyone could help contribute to this, but like, realistically, he's the one that's probably going to do most of it because he's the one who's done all the work to get the mental model in his head properly, you know, and he's kind of the gatekeeper over it. So if I, if I suggest a change and give it to him, he can just say, I don't want that. Or I think you did it badly or whatever, you know? Um, and so it's like, even, even Microsoft now is open sourcing a lot of their stuff, which is really interesting because you can see in some of their newer tools, you know, I'll be using it for work and I'll run into some weird issue and I'm like, huh, what's going on there? And then I Google it and I find some forum thread where hundreds of people are arguing about this. And sometimes it's a very trivial thing. It's like a one line change, but everyone's arguing like, well, it should be done this way or that way. And now that it's open for everyone to see, it's all messy. And then eventually you get some someone from Microsoft saying, well, we're not going to do it because of this. And then everyone rages at them. And, <laughs> you know, it's like, I don't, I don't know. It's, it's, it's kind of wacky. Um, it's just the cost of everything being visible, you know? Well, maybe that is because we focus too much on the accuracy aspect of it. <clears throat> I like the phrase that you used earlier when you were talking about the dance. Because mm-hmm. I think there is an aspect of all these things that has to be a dance and it has to be the proper proportion for the moment and for for this time and for this place and for this group of people, the proper proportion balance between accuracy and expression. Mm. And um, if you if you get too much down in the weeds with all these people demanding this and that and niggling on this little thing, then it the whole thing's going to break. But if you don't have some sort of standards, the whole thing is going to break as well. So there has to be some sort of a a dance between those two things. And uh, and then the picture comes into my mind. Have you have you ever watched or have you ever done square dancing? A little bit. My husband yeah. and I joined a square dance club for a few years, about, I don't know, seven or eight years ago, maybe. Okay. And um, one of the first things we noticed was it's a place that builds community unbelievably well because you're holding mm-hmm. hands with everybody all night long. <laughs> People that you'd <laughs> never hold hands with anywhere else. <laughs> huh. And uh, you're holding hands with with people of your own sex and people of the opposite sex and people of intersex and, you know, all kinds of people you're holding hands with and you're doing this all night long and you're, but you're, but you also are learning all these intricate calls because the kind of stuff they teach in grade school is so, so elementary. Our caller taught us 139 calls. And with those 139 calls, he could sing his way through any, you know, thousands of songs and um, call out the, the calls to those things and do all these intricate dances. And so the caller is up there calling the call and the dancers are just responding call by call to these, these little things. Mm. But, but because the whole thing is working together, it turns into this very intricate design. And yet there's a lot of freedom in the design. You don't at all feel like you're, 
being forced to obey a lot of rules, you feel like you're involved in a dance and it's a community kind mm -hmm. of thing. And there's, there's a real beauty to it. So, so the, and it only like works that, as long as everyone is submitting themselves to the rules of each call. Yes. yes right? Yeah. Yeah. Or, or if somebody just, if somebody's face is off for a second, which I would do sometimes and miss a call, it's like, what am I supposed to do? You end up flying out of the circle or something like that, you know? Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, it's, it's a very interesting process. I really enjoyed it, but, but that's also why I ended up having to have my left hip replaced because for whatever reason, the woman always spins on her left leg. They do all these twirls. The, the women are the only one that do the twirls. And uh, yeah. and the twirl is always on the left leg. So when I went in to get my hip replacement, the surgeon said, well, what have you been doing? And I said, well, the only thing that I can really think of that might have had something to do with this, he said, I said, is square dancing. And he said, oh, you wouldn't believe how many left hip replacements I do for square dancing. Really? <laughs> yes. So huh. there's, you probably you have to be, you know, maybe more athletic or in better shape so that your muscles know how to react to that kind of thing. But, um, but that's probably why I probably won't be doing square dancing again, but, but it was a great experience and uh, you do meet a lot of people and, and people who are very passionate about it. And strangely enough, the, the group we were in had members who had been members for like 40 years really, to the same club. And they met their spouse at the club. And so when they when the club first started, there were like 500 members. And so, of course, there are a lot of single men and women, and they were all young when they started. Now they're all old because the young people aren't coming along and getting into square dancing. But it was a terrific place to meet mates. And, and uh, it's a very wholesome activity. So uh, there's a lot to be said for it. There are a couple of square dance clubs in the area that are like more like college age and young adults that are involved in it, but they're yeah. kind of small compared to what they used to be. There used to be square dance clubs with 500,000 people all over the United States. Yeah. And then once you learn a certain kind of calling, you can go to any community and enter in. There are different kinds of calling, just like there are different sports. And so if right. you don't know the calling to a particular regional kind of calling, you can't really function in a in a square dance group. But but they've kind of uh, made a protocol set of calling so that you can go pretty much anywhere in the United States and dance the same square dance with people. So people travel all over. They go to these competitions, and but then you have to wear these weird clothes with big puffy sleeves right. and big puffy skirts. <laughs> that was a part I could kind of never get into, but. But it was fun. But the holding hands was amazing. And of yeah. course, they had to shut it down during COVID. Right. That was the end of it for like three years, which made me feel really bad because a lot of those people, that's the only community they ever had was yeah. was being able to go and dance once a week with people. Yeah. Did it rebound okay after the... You know, I don't know because we stopped going probably five years ago. So I haven't kept okay. in touch. Yeah, it might, my husband's mm -hmm. job just got too demanding because you have to be there at a certain time. I think it was like 6.30 or 7 o'clock at night and George often works much later than that and we just couldn't just couldn't always get there. And mm. So yeah. it's demanding building Wi-Fi widgets. <laughs> yeah, that's understandable. Yeah. 
This has been great, Ryan. I I hope we can pick up again where we left off and uh, maybe delve a little bit more into the art side of things. And I can talk about it from the art perspective. And then you can tell me if that fits in with what you're doing in software. Yeah, that'd be cool. Appreciate it. Great. I, I look forward to talking with you again. Yeah, thank you. Time for you to go get All dinner because right. I think you're further <laughs> east than I am. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's about yeah, it's time. So have a great evening. All right, you too. Take okay. care. Bye bye.